Good morning again, Hill family. How are we doing this morning? Good. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at the Hill Church, if you're new here today. Uh, grateful to be with you this morning. How many of you have Christmas decorations up already? All right. All of them? Inside, outside? Anybody? Nobody. So I beat all of you. Amen. Mine are all up, inside and outside. Um, good to see everyone. It is a joy, as I said, to be with you this Sunday. Uh, a few months ago, I had the privilege of speaking at a, at a conference on the East Coast. Um, and as is often the case when preparing a sermon or preaching a text, what I felt would be helpful for those men in the room proved to be most effective for my soul. The topic I was assigned was leading and laboring with proper confidence, which immediately grabbed my attention because I had just come out of a season when my confidence to lead, if I'm honest, had been really tested. Confidence is necessary for the Christian life. Through our study in Hebrews, the past few months, the author has pointed this out numerous times. I read a text this morning alluding to this. The author speaks of the necessity of a confidence that we hold firm to the end. He speaks of a confidence necessary for us to, in fact, draw near to God. Faithful Christian living requires confidence. But confidence is not always clean. See, the line between confidence in God, confidence in His call, and confidence in His enabling grace for us to live the Christian life can often be, maybe I should say, is often confused with mere confidence in ourselves. As a young pastor, 2020 taught me that painful lesson. Leading through 2020 exposed the fact that the confidence which I thought had marked my leadership had mostly been a counterfeit, if I'm honest. And through all the challenges that came with leading through the, through the pandemic and all the decisions that had to be made on a weekly basis, through a polarizing election and the social unrest of our nation, what became painfully clear was that I had been attempting to lead and labor from a confidence more in myself than in the God whom I was serving. And through a difficult season... God, by His grace, led me back to the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah where I discovered what can only be described as a peculiar confidence really on every page of this narrative. If you've been with us at the Hill for a few years, you would know that we, I taught through the book of Nehemiah. We went through it together. So by God's grace, He drew me back to this narrative again and in this narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, whether it's from Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, or just the leadership overall, a strange but sure confidence carries the narrative forward. And one such moment I found especially helpful and instructive for my soul was Ezra chapter 5, which served as the text for the message that I preached to those pastors at the conference. But if I'm honest, the further I got away from that message, the more I 
began realizing this message was much less for those men in that room and for this man and for our church, the Hill Church. Brothers and sisters, to labor effectively as God's people, maybe we could say it this way, to live faithfully as the church of Jesus Christ, we need proper confidence. But that poses a few or draws a few questions out, right? Where does proper confidence come from? How are we to guard our hearts, our lives from a counterfeit confidence? How do we individually and collectively, as the Hill Church, live our Christian lives with proper confidence? To answer that question, I want to turn your attention to Ezra chapter 5 this morning, which I've already heard many of you are getting there, if you haven't. Ezra chapter 5, if you don't know where it's at, don't be ashamed. Use your table of contents. That's what it's there for. The book of Ezra. And given this is our last Sunday, you might be wondering, why, why are we not in Hebrews anymore? We're praying over the last couple of weeks, and given that this is the last week and Sunday, before really the, the busyness of the Christian holiday begins, and which that means that in about a couple, couple nights you go to bed and wake up, it's going to be 2022. I felt it was important this morning to pause, to pause our series in Hebrews and allow Ezra chapter 5 to force all of us to assess our confidence this morning. And here's the main idea I hope we can unpack from the text. It's this, that proper confidence to live and labor as the people of God demands clarity concerning the nature and purposes of God in redemptive history. That's a mouthful. But proper confidence to live and labor as the people of God, it demands, it requires, it necessitates clarity concerning the nature and purposes of God in redemptive history. I'm going to ask for God's help one more time before we dive into our text. Father in heaven, we, we pause before the reading of your word. We pause before we dive into this text, God, and God, I ask for your help this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would illuminate this text as we walk through it. God, that you would show us in our hearts anywhere where A, we may be led by a counterfeit confidence, a confidence in ourselves, confidence in what we might think are our giftings or our abilities or our financial stability or whatever that might look like. God, that you might reveal those to us. But secondly, Lord, anyone in this room who lacks confidence as a Christian, God, that you might show them where true confidence is to be found. God, we are your people, birthed by your Spirit and given the beautiful, wonderful task of proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world around us. And we don't do that on any, on any shakable terms. We do it on the solid foundation of who you are, what you have done and what you are doing in history. God, I pray we would leave today with confidence to live faithfully as your people individually. But God, I pray you would mark our church as a church that is confident, not in ourselves, but in the power of the gospel in us and through us to live for your namesake. God, bless our time now as we walk through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezra begins with 
something with a new exodus being narrated to us. 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar had marched his army into Jerusalem and razed it to the ground, literally, dismantling the temple piece by piece, destroying the city walls and marching Jerusalem's treasure and Jerusalem's people some 800 miles back to slavery in Babylon. But by the time of Ezra, chapter 1, the people begin fleeing Babylon and returning to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the city again. And by this time, the Babylonian Empire had been toppled and King Cyrus of Persia had taken command. And not unlike today, with this change in world power came a change in foreign policy. Unlike the Babylonians who really exerted their power through subjugation, the Persians sought to exert their power by creating loyalty, thus allowing the people, the the nations that they had conquered, the peoples within those, to return to their lands and worship the way they decided. And under the providential hand of God, this resulted in three waves of Jews returning to rebuild the city outlined in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first wave... Uh, really is recorded in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, led by Zerubbabel and Jeshu. And this time, this returning, this building again, began royal. The altar was quickly rebuilt, allowing attention to turn to the temple, as recorded in chapter 3. But then discouragement and opposition began to mount in chapter 4. To the point that the final verse of chapter 4 conclude, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, 16 years of disobedience is what represents that white space between the end of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5. Until the secession of King Darius in 522, the temple work ceased. No work took place. But everything changes in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Put your eyes there. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshu, the son of Zozadak, arose and began to build the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. After 16 years, the rebuilding of the temple begins again. And it does so in the manner that every work of God begins. By the proclamation of God's word. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, it says, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, causing the people to rededicate themselves to the work. Brothers and sisters, no true work of God happens apart from the word of God. Ezra chapter 5, which simply reflects the rest of the Bible, is clear on this. Here, a disobedient, self-centered, Divided group of procrastinating people, as the prophet Haggai describes them. Go back and read it over lunch. They are here transformed into a repentant, unified, and sacrificial force ready to work. How? The means by which God does this is through the preaching of His Word. God's Word always proceeds, and God's Word always produces God's work. No true work of God, be it in your own heart or through your own hands will happen apart from the Word of God. 
You desiring for God to do a work in your life? You longing to see God use you for His purposes? Then you better be seeking Him in His Word and being faithful to it. But no sooner than that this work began, opposition amounts, uh, amounts again in verse 3. Really to guard against potential uprisings due to King Darius' transition to the throne, he established governors, or maybe your translation, translation says satraps, to keep order throughout the kingdom. And of course, news reaches the ears of the governor, Tatanai, regarding the, this new structure being, being built. It says, with, with haste and with huge stones and timbers, verse 8 describes it a little, a little further down. So fearing a threat of insurrection, Tatanai and his associates show up to demand answers in verse 3. Look at it. It says, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Then they ask them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Similar to the city officials of La Mesa. They see something going up. They want to see permits. Now, verse 5 to the rest of this chapter comprises the answer given by this leadership to these questions, which is where I want us to focus the rest of our time. And as I read it, I want you to hear this undeniable confidence that marks these words. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethazar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province uh, beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timbers is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who, uh, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus, the king, made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the, of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name is Sheshbazzar, who, had made, who, ha, who he had made governor. And he said to them, Take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazzar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in the that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives here in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of the house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Now, it is rather impressive that contained here in the word of God... We have an official record by a known historical figure, Tatanai, written to a famous world leader, King Darius, recording the response of these Jewish leaders. 
But there's something even more impressive here. And what's impressive here is the response, particularly in verses 11 through 12. You heard me as I read it. And the confidence contained in it. But there's something else present here besides just confidence. There, below the confidence that we see in this response here, there's a clarity embedded all throughout this text. These brothers, their confidence stems from clarity concerning at least three essential truths that I think every one of us need to grab hold of this morning. My prayer is that when we leave today, these three truths will guard your heart and help us really think about what it looks like to walk as faithful Christians, to live with this confidence. And the first one is this. Proper confidence demands clarity concerning the supremacy of our God. When asked very pointedly, and directly to identify themselves, these brothers, they don't mix words at all. Offer us up your names and information so we can report it to the powers that be, they are told. Literally, they say, who are you? What are your names? Answer, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Now, we have to deal with that phrase servant, but we should not, we cannot do so before we address its qualifier. They describe themselves as servants of the God of heaven and earth. An extremely bold and yet humble statement given the context here. And by this phrase, they are confessing to a pagan king who will be reporting their words to a pagan governor who will be reporting their words to a pagan king with enormous power that Yahweh, their God, is no mere tribal deity of the region. His authority covers the entire earth. His reign is supreme over the heavens and the earth. Their confession is that they serve Yahweh, the self-existent one, the self-sustaining one, the eternal God who is responsible for upholding the very universe. It's a bold confession, no doubt. But yet it also rings with a note of humble defiance as well. Like in the ancient world, for a nation to conquer another nation meant the display of their God's power over the conquered nation's God. So in this sense, under that understanding, Yahweh would have been subjugated by the Persian gods. But what they are confessing is, is that Yahweh, the God of Israel which seems to include only about 43,000 people at this time, if you go back and read the genealogies, that He is God alone. The God over this small remnant of people is the supreme one who in fact reigns over the entire earth. And they don't soft-pedal this at all. Put your eyes on verse 12. It says, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. They make clear this, this whole exile and destruction of the temple thing came not by the hand of any foreign king, but by the will of their very God. What seemed as nations flexing their power over Israel was in fact Yahweh orchestrating His divine discipline over His people. Absent here is any sort of confusion regarding the nature of the God that they serve. Their confidence is rooted in the clarity concerning the supremacy of Yahweh over the nations. Now, where did they find such clarity? Where was this the past 16 years? As I said, the 
the prophet. This section is, 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 is set out by a clear declaration that the word of God had come through the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. And as I said, the prophet Haggai had rebuked the people's procrastination and self-centered lifestyle, excusing their inactivity as, as what they said, their words, the time has not come to rebuild the house of God in Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. So while the house of God laid ruin, the people were dwelling in their paneled houses, the text tells us, which some believe was elaborate wood paneling that was purchased, in fact, for the reconstruction of the temple. They were using it for their own houses. But there was more to Haggai's message than just rebuke. Twice in chapter 2, the prophet records a phrase from the mouth of God describing his sovereign activity, which echoes the response of these men. I'm going to have these verses. I'm going to quote a lot of verses today. I won't ask us to turn there, but they'll all be on the, on the screens behind me, so you might want to write them down later. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, God says, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory as the Lord of hosts. Then again, in verse 21 of chapter 2, we read, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. Embedded in their response that we are servants of the God of heaven and earth is a deep-seated conviction in the supremacy of their God. They understood history itself to be moving at the pace of the purposes of their God. Yahweh is shaking the universe for the advancement of His kingdom purposes, which included Him ensuring certain things happen and as well assuring certain things do not happen. Look back at verse 5. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. As the supreme one, God exercises what one scholar says here is his preventative providence. God's providential hand prevented Tatanai from stopping the work of the rebuilding as well as prevented the elders of the Jews from being tempted to give in to the threats and the pressure as they had been the last 16 years. These men knew the eye of their God was upon them. Brothers and sisters, small thoughts of God will never sustain our Christian living. I think we would all confess that truth. But articulating statements confirming God's supremacy and resting in that supremacy are two different things. What do I mean? But when difficulty arises in our lives, do we tend to respond with clarity or with confusion concerning the supremacy of God? Do, the, do difficult circumstances drive us to rest in the supremacy of God or do they tend to dictate how we, in fact, view God? We need clarity. A clarity that's found in this text regarding the supremacy of God. That's where confidence begins. A proper confidence. 
This is what will sustain our labor and faithfulness as God's people. But again, I don't want us to miss, and this is where God was very kind to me, to show me in my season of struggle. We cannot miss where these brothers derive such clarity from. From the Word of God, yes, absolutely. But it came from the Word of God out of a season of difficulty. It came out of a season of disobedience. It came out of a season of pain. Through the Word of God, they were able to process their pain. And it allowed them to produce clarity concerning God's role in the exile, as evidenced in verse 12. By being confronted by the Word of God, they knew that their God was supreme over the exile and over all the affairs of their lives. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is supreme over all the affairs of this world and over all the affairs of your life? We tend to want to waste difficult circumstances. Don't do that. Don't waste difficult circumstances in your life. Allow the difficulties and hard seasons of life to produce clarity concerning who, in fact, our God is. Clarity concerning the supremacy of who He is, of whom the God that we serve is. That is where proper confidence begins. In our clarity, church, speak to us this morning. As we move beyond the pages of Ezra chapter 5, our clarity concerning God's supremacy should far, out, should far surpass what we find here in Ezra chapter 5. We've been in Hebrews, right? We know the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. We know the Son, who is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. We know the Son, who is the supreme one, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. We know Jesus, who bore the full punishment of exile in His body on the tree, bringing about the restoration that we all enjoy. As the church of Jesus Christ, we serve a God who not only shakes the heavens and the earth. Haggai chapter 1 and 2. We serve a God, Ephesians chapter 1, who's uniting all things in heaven on earth in the Lord Jesus. Our confidence necessary to live faithfully, to labor effectively as God's people must begin with clarity concerning the supremacy of who in fact our God is. But it also includes something else. There's a clarity here we must grab hold of concerning the simplicity of our call. When asked to give their names, they respond, we're servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we cannot miss the bold humility here. Given all that was just noted concerning what these brothers learned during the exile, we might expect a different response here. Maybe we might expect political correctness. We're royal subjects of the Persian crown. Would have been true. Instead of political correctness, maybe, maybe, maybe prideful piety. We're rulers chosen by God to lead His special people, to display His glory in all the earth. We're elders of the city God has chosen to rebuild as a light to the nations. Would have been true. But we find neither here. Instead, when asked their names, they simply respond, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. 
Now, this desire to remain anonymous, of course, to remain anonymous in terms of the king, speaks to the seriousness of the situation. Like, it, it, was, it was helpful that he didn't know who you were. But that's not all it says. Embracing this anonymous title of servant testifies to their clarity regarding the nature of their calling. They were simply servants, like all the rest of God's faithful ones in the Bible. Moses, Joshua, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and on and on and on and on, understood themselves as mere servants of God. These brothers knew their role in this moment of redemptive history was no different than all those who had gone before them. The life of faith, the life of faithful Christian living at its core is servanthood. Our faithfulness demands we embrace this simple call of a servant. And we bask in the freedom of what it means to be an anonymous servant for King Jesus. Honest question here. Honest question I ask my heart often. I ask it to you. Are you content with being an anonymous servant for King Jesus? Is that enough for you? Do you see the beauty in embracing the sweetness of the day in, day out, faithful, simple life of a servant? Church, I I want my life to count for the kingdom. I want our little church here on this hill to count for the kingdom. But I'm very aware that that won't happen apart from embracing our call as servants. This should not surprise us, right? Our Savior is the one who, who got down on His knees. Assuming the posture of the lowest, the lowliest one in society and took off the towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. It's our second mark here of what it means to be a disciple at the hill. A loving servant. The Lord of glory became the Lord of the towel. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. This in fact is the Christmas story. That the King of glory would enter our world through a cradle in Bethlehem. Titles, accolades, platforms, and pride can grow a crowd. It won't advance the efforts of God's kingdom at all. It won't move the needle in one way. Are you a person that needs to be known? Needs to be elevated? Are you content with being counted among all the faithful ones of the Bible as simply an anonymous servant of the Lord Jesus? Now, servanthood is not easy, lest we get that twisted. Hard work is part and parcel of what it means to be a servant. I love Paul's words to Timothy regarding a hard-working farmer. Hard work is indispensable in farming, I'm told. Some of you may know. Successful farming requires as much sweat as it does skill, one author says. Irregardless of the quality of the soil, the difficulty of the weather, or the challenges of the farmer's life, the farmer must keep his hand to the plow. There's a sweetness in laboring hard when laboring for the right thing. Church, this text calls me personally. It calls us collectively to embrace the simplicity of our call to just be 
anonymous servants and cherish the hard work of laboring for King Jesus together. I don't want us. I don't want myself. I don't want miss I don't want you. I don't want us to miss the beauty, the privilege and the fulfillment of our call to be simple servants for King Jesus. Clarity concerning the simplicity of our call is necessary to labor confidently for him. There's a third mark here though. Clarity concerning we also need to have clarity concerning the significance of our labor. So embracing the simplicity of our call should in, in no way denigrate the significance of our labor. They respond here, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth, rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now this, this statement does tell us at least two things here. They, first of all, they possess an assurance that God will allow their efforts to succeed just as he did prior with Solomon when the temple was originally built. But secondly, and most importantly, they understood their labor with every brick that was laid, with every bit of skill that they had to put into it and hard work to be connected to a much larger work of God running across the pages of redemptive history. And we must as well, church. Now, being cynical would be very easy here. The first temple that was built and all the purposes and promises associated seemed to not go that well. The Babylonians saw to that. And now we're, we're asked and we're going to attempt to, to do this thing again when we can already tell that it's not going to be anything of its former glory. If their eyes would have been fixed on earthly realities alone, they would have missed the significance of what was in fact taking place. But their eyes were fixed somewhere else, as ours must remain as well. Their labor was informed and their labor was motivated by the word of God spoken through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who pointed the people beyond the restoration of the rebuilding that they were taking part in to an even greater and glorious restoration. For instance, these will be on the screen. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 7. We read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Chapter 14 verse 8 where we read, Only on, on that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one in His name one. A little farther down. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. They understood that the significance of their labor went far beyond the stone and mason work of rebuilding a physical structure on a geographical location on the map. Their labor was significant because it was tied to the glory of God and His sovereign redemptive purposes in His people. But there's more to Zechariah's prophecy. For in chapter 9, God explains how His great salvation and restoration would come by the hand of their king who would enter Jerusalem, we know this verse, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he would come, as chapters 11 and 12 outline, to deliver his people from evil shepherds by sending his good shepherd, 
to redeem and rule over his people. Then chapter 12, verse 10, God promises, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The, the confidence these men possessed stemmed from a clarity concerning the significance of what in fact they were doing. It was true they were simply rebuilding the temple that Solomon built just years prior. But it was also true that with every brick they laid, they were participating in God's great work of restoration in and through His people. But the clarity that informed the significance of their label pales in comparison to us this morning in this room. What they could see in shadows and types, we know the full substance of in Christ. We know the significance of our labor because we know Jesus. Jesus is the King who entered Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is the Good Shepherd who came to lay down His life for the sheep. Jesus is the God-man whom they looked upon. He's the one whom they pierced and mourned over. And by so doing, Jesus is the one who opened the fountain of cleansing blood for the sin and unrighteousness of the nations. Jesus is the true temple. In His incarnation, He brought the full and final manifestation of the Father's glory to dwell with us. The true temple is not to be found in stones and the beautiful things of Jerusalem's place of worship, but in the resurrected body of Christ. He is everything the temple was meant to represent. Jesus is the majesty, the awesomeness, the purity, and the brilliance of God who on the cross triumphed over the curse, bringing full restoration for His people. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Jesus is our king, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the temple that we labor for. As the people of God, we labor to build God's new structure. The church whom Paul in Ephesians 2 defines as a holy temple in the Lord that in Him is being built up into a dwelling place by God for His Spirit. Through the church and its proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the nations can now gather to worship the living God truly and rightly. And the glory of God in the person of His Son can spread forth to all the nations. What does this mean for us? It means that nothing we take part in as the body of Christ is insignificant. Every worship gathering we attend, every prayer meeting, every time we gather early to pray in the parking lot, every time you come early to serve coffee, to fill out prayer requests, to operate the soundboard, to run the slides, to serve with the kids, to lead us in singing or serve on the security team, this means that every community group gathering is significant. Every D group gathering is significant. Every members meeting. Every time you share the gospel with a family member who doesn't seem to get it and you keep doing it and keep praying and they don't respond. 
Every task we put our hands to is filled with significance, brothers and sisters. Because it is labor that points to the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ through His people. We're members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Nehemiah, will you remember this verse if you were here when we studied through Nehemiah? But even not, I'm sure you know it. In 2020, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3, was the verse that really convicted me and got me pleading to the Lord. Following that third wave, so we're, we're addressing the first wave in Ezra. The third wave of returning Jews was was outlined in Nehemiah. There was two fellows, Tobiah and Samballot, who tried to get Nehemiah to stop working multiple of ways. And one of those ways, they, they called him out to the plain of Ono and challenged him directly. And do you remember Nehemiah's response? He said, I can't come down. Why? Why? I'm doing a great work. Not just a work. A great work. Church, that's a question for us. Do we recognize the greatness of our labor as the people of God? Do we recognize that the greatness of our labor has nothing really to do with us? Has nothing to do really about the amount, the amount of what we're doing? It really doesn't even have to do with whom we're doing it for. It's great because it's labor for Him. And like Ezra and Nehemiah, we will experience days when we look at what we're doing with natural eyes and and, and get discouraged. We saw this multiple times in Nehemiah. After the temple was built, it's finally finished. The generation who had seen the first temple, their response was what? They wept and mourned over it. That had to be really encouraging for Nehemiah. And seeing, after seeing the wall being built, Tobiah tells Nehemiah, if a fox jumps on that thing, it's going to fall over. Church, we can't as well fall prey to believing that what we can physically see with our eyes and touch with our hands speaks to the greatness of our labor as the people of God. Size, big or small, says nothing of the greatness of our service to the king. As members of the household of God, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit, any and all work we do for Him is great. So we must focus our efforts on laboring for Jesus together as the Hill Church. That's what I'm really trying to call us to think about as we enter this busy season. What does it look like to labor together as the church for the advancement of King Jesus? We need to do that. But we also need to do that by fixing our gaze beyond ourselves. Our our labor as the Hill Church is not for the address outside at the street. It's not for 7485 Orion Avenue in La Mesa. Our labor as the Hill Church in this neighborhood and in each of each other's lives together as the people here 
is ultimately for the advancement of God's great name to the nations. Brothers and sisters, we labor for a city that is to come, for a new Jerusalem, where all nations will gather and where there will be no need for a temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I want you to hear something. I want you to hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, this is how we should regard ourselves. This is how one should regard us, he says. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. What a fascinating description. Like on your tombstone one day, what do you want to be there? Sum up your life. This would be a great one. Servant of Christ, steward of the mystery of God. We are servants of King Jesus. And we are stewards of the mystery of God. We're stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same gospel that has saved us. The same gospel that brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. The same gospel that brought us from spiritual orphans to family together in Christ. And it's been entrusted to us. And we get to steward that gospel by proclaiming it. By living it out amongst us as people. We're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's nothing more significant that we can take part in than our labor together as the people of God. So to labor effectively as God's people, we need confidence, proper confidence, which I'm trying to get home to you this morning requires clarity. At least three ways. Clarity concerning the supremacy of the God that we serve. In every area of your life, He is sovereign, He is good, and His providential hand is leading us. No matter what that looks like, we trust Him. Secondly, the simplicity of our call. We need clarity on that. We're servants, that's all. But servants of King Jesus. And because of we're servants of King Jesus, there is significance to everything we put our hands to in His name. Everything. Because of who God is and what He has done in redemptive history. I want to just give us some time to reflect here. I'm doing this here. You guys know me. I'm not a visionary type of guy. I don't spend the first of the year giving us some visionary types of message to lay out the year. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just not me. I like to just continue on through what series we're in and keep pointing us back to Christ and where we're preaching through, and that'll be through Hebrews. But I did feel the need to pause this morning and lay this text before you. It's a text that God brought to my heart. It's a text that I felt like I needed to bring to you as a church. I felt like it was a good season for it. And I want you just to assess your heart. Assess where you are before the Lord. We should have confidence as God's people, but not in ourselves, in Him. He's the supreme one. He's given us this beautiful, simple call. 
And everything that we put our hands to for his name's sake is significant in our lives. Allow those three things to provide us confidence as the people of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that we find in Ezra chapter 5. But thank you for the example of these men in Ezra chapter 5 that point us to the glory of our great king. Our Savior Jesus. Father, I do pray we would hear loudly and clearly in our hearts this morning. There will be no work of God apart from the word of God. God, that would solidify us each and every day. If we want to labor for you, we must be in your word. We must be being challenged and convicted by your word. And trying to live lives obedient to your word. And God, let what takes place place in our hearts individually spill over into our life corporately God please make us continue to make us a people of your word and God if we're in your word and we're seeking after you God I do pray these we would have clarity concerning who you are you're the supreme one and God we would embrace and love and cherish the simple call to just be servants to serve one another to care for one another And to serve, most importantly, you, King Jesus, in this world. And God, I do pray that you would never let us forget. Never let us get blinded by the fact of what we do together. Gathering as a little body here in Mesa, California is significant. Because it points to your great work in your people for the glory of your great name. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.